Hi everybody, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where a current philosophy major, that's me, and his former high school philosophy teacher, that's me, unpack a variety of philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to episode 9. Mr. Parsons, how are you doing today? Well, Andrew, I'd like to talk about future me. <laughs> so, uh, so by the time this episode airs, it will be the first week of June, and summer will be here. And where I'm currently at, uh, summer is a month away. And the month of May is, without question, the craziest month of the, uh, of the academic cycle. So uh, it's a bit of hell to get through to get to heaven. So, <laughs> so future me, when, when, when this airs, will be living, living the good life after a long, hard race that has been won. It has been, as you well know, a, a crazy year in education with all the COVID business. And uh, every every week seems like a, a new challenge that we haven't faced before. So some some well earned rest, but not quite yet. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm a little bit closer to the end than you are, so I can see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Just finishing up about two more weeks left of a lot of papers and, and a few finals, but uh, looking forward to things and and looking forward to better times next year. Hopefully, you uh you, you got summer plans. Big summer plans. I'm just going to be studying for the LSAT, so not not nothing too exciting. But uh, uh, I'm I'll be definitely glad to get that out of the way in in middle June. Just just melting in Houston and studying for the LSAT. Right. Awesome. What could be better? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right, everybody. Today we're really excited about this episode. We're going to take a look at one of the more well-known philosophers. Uh, sometimes that's due to, uh, to perhaps controversy. He's kind of the bad boy of philosophy. I'm talking about the 19th century philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. And to help us along with this today, we are really excited to introduce our first guest to the show, Nietzsche scholar Carson Knox. Carson has studied Nietzsche at Oxford University and spent a tremendous amount of his undergraduate time with Nietzsche at the Virginia Military Institute, where he is about to graduate and move on to graduate work. Carson, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, it's exciting to be here. So, Well, I know you've done a lot of work with, with Nietzsche, and so we're looking forward to this conversation with you. So, so to get us rolling, who is, who's Nietzsche, and, and why is he important in the philosophical world? Yeah, well, you, you gave a, a pretty pretty good introduction earlier. You know, he's kind of known as a, a late 19th century German philosopher. He kind of wrote from the 1870s to the 1890s. You know, he, he's famous for questioning everything and revaluing um, the life that we thought we knew. So he comes post-Kant, post-Schopenhauer, kind of in this skeptical mindset that Schopenhauer left behind and you know he's he's famous and well known for um like you said controversy he's kind of linked as the the nazi philosopher due to misconceptions of his will to power which was actually uh edited from his notes post mortem by his sister and then published and that was kind of kind of went into the hands of nazis and used for some anti-semitic and pro-german nationalism I would say his largest influence and probably his most importance is found in the the literary and artistic worlds. Just uh, his influence on 
the modernist movement and literature and then his influence on abstract expressionism and surrealism in the artistic world. But he's also far-reaching um, with influence on psychologists such as Freud and Carl Jung. He kind of changed the world and made everyone look at things differently. So his importance is, is almost too big to be measured. I guess some, some other interesting things about him would be uh, in spite of him being linked to German nationalism, he very quickly denounced his citizenship as a German and lived as a stateless man up in the the mountains in Switzerland. And he was kind of a hermit, so he's linked to all these things that he kind of actively lived against, which is interesting. You know, as someone who's a big fan of the classics, I often see Nietzsche comes up a lot uh, as a as a one of the most exemplary scholars of ancient Greek and Latin works. Do you, do you have any kind of background or any knowledge about how he got into that or uh, how he kind of drew the influences from the ancients? Yeah, so originally whenever he went to study at university, he was studying actually Christianity, um, Lutheran, and he decided he, he hated it. Um, his father was a, a Lutheran priest and he was not a big fan, so he decided that he had already studied Hebrew during his time of studying Christianity, so he got into Greek and Latin and decided to become a philologist. So he, he heavily studied all, all the classics, and it was actually what his first major piece was about, uh, the, the birth of tragedy, was focused on you know dissecting ancient Greek art and trying to affirm life through it. So he was, he was well-versed in not only ancient Greek as a language, but the ancient Greeks culture and, and artistic values. Hey Carson, just real quick, what, what is philology? Philology is pretty much the study of the, the structure and the history of languages. So Nietzsche was proficient in the study and the, the history of German, Italian, French, Latin, and Greek. Those are kind of the ones he, he dealt with. Italian less so, but French, German, Greek, and Latin were kind of his specialties. And it has a bit to do with culture as well, too, right? Right, right. Usually the reason philologists study the the history and structure of a language is along with the culture and values of the where the language comes from. And that's why Nietzsche was so focused on ancient Greek, studying the language because he, he was in love with the culture and the artistic values found within. Yeah, and he was he was one of the earliest professors, right? He was very young when he gained a professorship, which is uh, no small feat, certainly. Right, yeah. He was 24 years old when he started teaching at the University of Basel in Switzerland, and he had not finished his doctorate yet. It was actually, he was kind of written in by a, a professor he had had that he was kind of recognized as this genius, so they gave him an honorary doctorate before he had even finished his thesis and a kind of a makeshift teaching certificate to allow him to become uh, you know, a sitting sitting professor at the University of Basel. So he he's kind of a, a, a quick riser in the academic world and then becomes disenchanted with that, I suppose, at some point. So, so walk us through that part of his biography a bit and, and where he ends up, how he ends up in Switzerland. Right, so um, he's at the University of Basel, and he's 24 years old, and in his mind, he's he's kind of made it. He's pretty awesome. He's recognized as, um, you know, this genius in the world of 
philology. He hadn't published anything huge yet. He hadn't really done much. The first thing he publishes will be in 1872, and it's The Birth of Tragedy. And he's still a professor at this point. And the critical reception of The Birth of Tragedy was not great. It's a philosophical piece on aesthetic theory that has zero footnotes, um, zero citations to any other philosopher. And he kind of just goes off the whim and says, you know, this is this is Frederick Nietzsche. This is what I, I think about everything. And it was against every rule you could probably break in the academic sphere. So not only was he disenchanted with, you know, the structure of the academic world, but at that point they were a little disenchanted with him. I mean, some people thought, you know, oh my, the genius of Frederick Nietzsche, but most people were kind of a little upset of him breaking academic tradition and such. And along with this, he also would purposefully schedule his lectures and classes at the same exact time as the only other philology professor at the University of Basel, (laughs) kind of as a competition. And he was pretty sure that all the students would show up to his classes because he was the, you know, the genius kid and an underwhelming amount showed up. And again, he's disenchanted with the, the academic world and he eventually ends up leaving professorship and becomes an almost a hermit um, living kind of in the, the mountains of, of Switzerland and kind of abandons the academic world and his just German nationalism kind of all at the same time. So he's he's in the mountains, I guess, kind of living as a hermit. How does he become, you know, sort of well known or, or how does he kind of make his rise? Well, during his life, he he was not terribly well known. Uh, he ended up dying pretty early in 1900. And by that point in his life, he had sold 500 copies of anything he had ever written. So total 500 copies, I believe, before he actually dies. Now, that's just full copies of his book. A lot He wrote a lot of articles and a lot of excerpts were used in like philosophical magazines and stuff that circulated to England. So his ideas were, were really well known. Now, he was not terribly successful as a as an author, he didn't he didn't sell much, but his ideas ended up becoming well known across the world, and that's partly due to his. I I think his editor was was a, did a really good job at getting him into these magazines and stuff. But he was also just so controversial and so against the traditional philosophical tradition that um he he stood out and he was exciting and. He was also actively responding to Schopenhauer, who was already huge at this time. His pessimism had kind of taken over the greater part of Europe and part of America. So he was extremely relevant to you know, just this very pessimistic worldview that Schopenhauer left behind. And he's kind of one of the first that picks it up and tries to affirm it. So. Well, I don't want to, you know, it's impossible to, to cover someone like Nietzsche in, in the time that we have allotted for it. So so I just want to maybe bring one last thing up about his biography, or maybe two. You know, you, you mentioned controversy. I know one of the one of the people that he uh, had a, a friendship with earlier in his life was Richard Wagner, the great German opera composer. And, and they were good friends, and then they had a falling out, and uh, Nietzsche 
writes very strongly about that in some of his works. Am I correct on that? Yes. So his, his, in his piece, The Birth to Tragedy, there's a, one of the chapters is titled um, so, something along the lines of praising Richard Wag- Wagner. And he kind of goes along the lines of saying um, Wagner is successful in restoring the Greek tragedy, the tradition of Greek tragedy, which is what Nietzsche puts on this pedestal for for art. This is the the true artistic form. This is what everything should strive to be. And he, he puts Wagner on that pedestal and then they have a, a pretty big falling out. And he's, he's very critical of Wagner afterwards. And he's also very critical of just the German identity afterwards. Uh, in the birth to tragedy, we see him praising Wagner for being a true German for the true German identity because at this point Germany had just become its own state, kind of uniting Prussia and all that. And then after the falling out with Wagner, um, Nietzsche abandons everything, the German identity as well as his metaphysical theory of, of art. So Wagner was kind of the last straw on all that. So we've kind of covered a, a great deal of his biography. Or, or Mr. Parsons, did you want to add one more thing? I remember you said you had two, two biographical notes. Oh, well... It- I, I did kind of want to hear about what can only be described as the, the tragic end of Nietzsche's life. Yeah, so I guess the, the tragic end of Nietzsche's life would be he essentially went insane and uh, ended up dying bedridden and a little mentally disturbed. And there, there's a funny story, and the validity of it's always been questioned, but that one day he was walking in town and he sees a horse being flogged and he falls on his knees and kind of caresses the horse and gets in the way of the flogging and says, you know, I understand you. Um, I feel bad for you. I'm sympathetic towards you. And then after that, he just goes into a, a mental breakdown and there's connections to his, his demise with, I, I believe syphilis and other STDs that he, he may have gotten at a, a brothel that the, the idea of the horse is if you, when we get into Nietzsche's philosophy, you'll see like this sympathy, this mercy is against everything he he preached, and and this one action seemingly um, predates his his and uh, demise and fall into mental absurdity. So, he, and, and he that did, lasted about ten years, right? Like, like yes, w- when the snap happened with the horse, right? So that happened in about eighteen ninety. The snap happened with the horse, eighteen ninety which is right after his last publishing, I believe was in 89, um, that he published himself. And 1890 to 1900, um, he, he's writing notes and stuff, but he, he never publishes a, a work himself after that. And didn't that like the year before he snapped, wasn't that one of his most prolific years of writing? Didn't he publish like something like five books? Right. I actually believe it was 88 when he kind of, he was very passionate and very determined to write. And this is kind of when we see all his, his final pieces, I believe Twilight of the Idols, the Antichrist, Ecce Homo comes near the end. And thus spoke Zarathustra was like right before all of this. And uh, apparently, and I haven't done much research on this, when one contracts syphilis, there there's a state of before you feel terrible and start to die of, complete euphoria and this almost enlightened state 
And I, I, I think it's been seen in other authors and philosophers, but uh, I, I guess Nietzsche was at this point during 1888, um, kind of on this on this high. So yeah. So you you briefly mentioned um, kind of how the Nazis kind of took on his work at the end. Um, are do you want to talk a little bit about like how he was kind of misconceived and uh, after the Nazis used his his work? I think Nietzsche was misconceived by by the Nazis mostly due to his sister. So when he died, he left thousands of pages of notes, and his sister published probably one of his most most famous works, uh, A Will to Power, which is very controversial. It it's the the main one that the Nazis used to, to justify themselves, and it's made up of random strings and pages of, of Nietzsche's notes, and it, to question the authenticity of whether he ever wanted those things to be read because he never asked for them to be published or actively strived for them to be published. And say you start off reading Nietzsche with the will to power, and then you go back and read his later works, it's very easy to be under that idea or, or the concepts of the will to power kind of this extreme version of it and you turn his whole works and his whole body of work into something that it's it's not and you know after the the nazis used him he was and at least in the academic world he was heavily avoided kind of until the 1970s when actually at the university of texas austin going to forget the philosophers that brought him back but they had I think it's Robert Solomon. Yes. Am I right? Yes. Yes, Solomon. And they kind of had this it wasn't a convention of sorts but they they brought together these people that were studying Nietzsche and wrote this book called Reading Nietzsche and it kind of respawned him in the academic sphere and we've seen him not necessarily celebrated but a lot more critical work done on him since the since the 70s kind of brought him back and encourage people to go read the the real works of Nietzsche and understand him truly as a philosopher or whatever he was. So Will to Power is considered his last work, even though that really wasn't a work per se. It was a cobbling together of, of his scribblings of notes that, that his sister put together. So, so what I'm understanding here from you is that like, if you start with Nietzsche with Will to Power, you're starting in the wrong place. Like it's a misrepresentation. Right. Exactly. Yes, I believe starting with the the will to power would be a misrepresentation because it is the only work that Nietzsche did not set up himself to be published. Everything else is um, kind of organized and structured by him, which I think is pretty important. Maybe this is a question for for later, but uh, if if someone came up to you and said, Carson, I want to get into Nietzsche, where should I start? Where would you recommend they, they start at? You know, it, it, it's honestly weird when you talk about how to read Nietzsche or where to begin with Nietzsche because depending on what you want to learn, there's definitely different sections or different books to start in. So if you want more of the positive, uplifting, maybe maybe happy Nietzsche, maybe The Birth to Tragedy would be one, or maybe A Gay Science would be another one, but... I don't know. There's also people who kind of like the the snappy, sarcastic Nietzsche, and you know, a genealogy of morals kind of tracks the ideas of of good and evil back to prehistory, and then he makes some questionable remarks on Christians and the Jewish faith, and 
So it depends on on what the the reader is looking for, but you can honestly start almost anywhere and end up at the same place as anyone else, I think, for the most part. So so reading one Nietzsche book is not doesn't do it. It's like I mean, it doesn't give you the complete Nietzsche, right? Right. Yeah, he didn't he didn't write like one seminal piece that is the true Frederick Nietzsche. He's kind of ever changing and ever adapting in not only ideas but in the styles of how he writes his books. So you could read one and be like, "Okay, I understand Frederick Nietzsche," and then read another one and it's a completely different style and takes on a completely new identity. So, and I I believe that's part of it. The foundation of his philosophy is this changing of worldview and and style. So to understand him fully, you would have to read multiple pieces. So so let's talk about that for a minute. Um, you know, you would like to think that a, a philosopher and, and is is attempting to they have a philosophical project kind of throughout their life that they write and orbit around, and, and that they're trying to solidify an idea or two or three that are interrelated. I mean, you can think of Plato as a great example. Although Plato's work changes a little bit near the end of his life, still we kind of have this sort of consistent message from Plato about idealism and rationalism and all this sort of stuff. If Nietzsche is writing, like if each one of his books is such a, a different sort of take on things, like what was Nietzsche's project and, and, and why does he write like that? No, I think this is an idea that you know scholars and critics are, are still dealing with you know what is the summation of Nietzsche's works like if you look for a, a unifying idea the closest one you'll probably see is the will to power which shows up in a few books in the middle and near the end but it's completely avoided in the birth to tragedy other critics might point you towards this idea of the the Dionysian element this ability to glance at the true nature of life and say yes to it. Other critics might say, you know, he purposefully writes in different styles um, when speaking on different ideas because he's promoting perspectivism, this idea that, you know, life can be affirmed through multiple points of view. Not relativism, though. Um, he, he does advocate for validity in ideas and the ability to reason through certain things. So I believe there's there's multiple takeaways from Nietzsche. Now to say there's one solid idea that he's building on in his philosophy throughout all all of his works is a a pretty bold thing to say and I think critics have been been trying to do it and it's you can always counter it with no I think he was talking about this or you can bring in the idea that he kind of disagrees with himself throughout the, the multiple pieces of work. So to, to say there's one thing that Nietzsche was advocating for, I, I think the most popular idea would probably be his perspectivism, the idea of perspectivism. Yeah, can, can you just give us a little bit of background on perspectivism? Tell us what it is. and Yeah, so to fully explain it, it kind of goes back to, to Schopenhauer. So Schopenhauer's worldview is pretty pessimistic in the fact that the way he thought someone should live would be denial of oneself, um, kind of a Buddhist approach, kind of putting your own personal wants, desires, and everything in the background and living as part of this one greater 
existence of, of all things of life itself versus your life. And Nietzsche hated this a lot. He thought it was kind of a, a cop-out. He thought it was an excuse. So he attempts to affirm life throughout his entire philosophy, but he starts out with the metaphysical artistic theory, and then he soon denies the metaphysical. So now he's left with, well, how do I affirm life without the metaphysical world? So then he kind of jumps around from, from different ideas, and he, in the end... He, he's advocating for each person to do the same thing he's doing. So in, in multiple of his works, he says, you know, if you're trying to, to follow me, the first step is to not follow me or is to disagree with me. So he's advocating for each reader to, to take his journey as a thinker and question values and create their own worldview in a way. And... He's not saying that every worldview is correct, as a, a relativist would. He's not saying each worldview is as valuable as the others, because he openly shoots down Christianity and even ideas of pure reason, which Kant might advocate for. So he's saying that you can't argue and reason to a perspective that can affirm life. So I guess perspectivism would, would be the idea that you know each person from their perspective can create a worldview that is affirmative of living and each perspective can hold value depending on how one reasons it to be. So it seems like there's a real emphasis on the idea of authenticity was kind of wrapped up in this. Right, exactly. Yeah. One of his big ideas was the idea of becoming who you are, which is, I guess, kind of oxymoronic, but it, he, he was very big on, you know, becoming true to oneself and becoming who you are and who you should be. Let's talk about the, the will to power for a minute. Uh, I know you kind of mentioned that earlier, but can can you give us a little bit of information on what that is? What What's his thinking behind that? Right. So Nietzsche's idea of the will to power comes from Schopenhauer's idea of the, the will to live. And Schopenhauer's idea of the will to live is there is some inherent power um, behind all people. Well, actually, the will to live was behind all things that we strive to survive. We strive to see the next day. We strive to cohabitate with other things. And Nietzsche thought this was not true. He believed that there was the will to power, the will to overcoming um, in all things in nature. So the will to become stronger, become on top, become dominant, um, not necessarily aggressive, but to become better and improve and compete and it's this inherent drive in all living things and he kind of uses he goes into this in the genealogy of morals a lot how the ideas of good and bad have changed over time he used to say that good was to be to be noble to be strong to be rich to be attractive you know all these things that place you higher than other people and that's what we as humans strive for is to be above others in a way so the will to power is the inherent striving to be better than others to be better than yourself to be better than everything in life so is this kind of a view on human nature or is it 
kind of this is how one should live? It's it's not a this is how I guess it could be a this is how one should live, depending on which piece someone reads. The the thing about the will to power is by the time Nietzsche relies on it heavily, he had already denied the the metaphysical world. So he, he didn't believe in things that weren't tangible. Um, he didn't believe in things that weren't physical. So the idea of the soul or something does not really um, come to Nietzsche, which is weird for the will to power uh, where it would lie and what it truly is. And he doesn't really explain it. Um, he kind of just drops it as, you know, there is this thing that drives all of life and it is the will to power. And then he'll use certain examples of it, but he never sits down and says the will to power is this. Mm -hmm. So it is a, a weird concept. And we'll see this a lot with Nietzsche, whether we start talking about his idea of the overman or, or the ubermensch or eternal return, eternal recurrence. He, he doesn't ever explicitly say this is is this and he purposefully does that because if he was to say what the will to power was it would completely discredit his critique of the metaphysical world so carson um nietzsche uh, how many works did he write like maybe 18 i honestly off the top of my head don't know the total but it was it was quite a bit it was and uh and and in many of those books he adopts a different type of writing style. Well, what different types of writing styles did he use in all of these different books? And how did that, uh, how does that just go in with, with kind of who he is as a philosopher? Yeah. So Nietzsche definitely adopts different types of writing styles and it, it's dependent on what he's talking about and what he's trying to convey about that idea. So I guess we can start with his first piece, the, the birth, the tragedy and, in this piece, he's kind of taking on the the cap of a an art critic, an art theorist. Uh, the birth of tragedy is based on aesthetic affirmation of life, and we can see in his prose he's actively trying to be an artist. Uh, it's beautifully written, um, almost poetic at times, and it's it's long winded for sure in some of his explanations. But it's uh it's actively trying to be a piece of art itself, which is really interesting. And then in Human All Too Human, we kind of see him become a, a psychologist of sorts. He's openly and actively dissecting all these different functions of human life, whether it be how the weather can affect one's ability to think and what they're thinking about, to even kind of bashing on the Germans for their, their love of meat and beer and how that affects their processes of thinking. And then we, we kind of see in the gay scientist, he or in the gay science, he takes on the cap of a, a scientist, kind of taking a more scientific look at certain things in human life, kind of a similar way to in human all too human, the psychological lens. But he also is artistic in that piece as well. He, he begins with, I think, 20 or so poems and... He writes the whole thing in aphorisms, which he kind of like a whenever you think of, I guess, like Japanese proverbs, just proverbs, uh, the book in the Bible itself, just these random sayings that are all strung together. And then in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he kind of takes on the role of a 
prophet, a prophet of Zoroaster, the the god of Persian tradition, and he's actively writing as one of the prophets, kind of like it's biblical, it's a parable of ways. And Ece Homo, he's writing as a autobiographer. Uh, he's looking back at all of his pieces and openly critiquing himself. And then we have the genealogy of morals, which is the only one he openly takes up his philology tradition, uh, fully examining the ideas of uh, good and bad all the way back to their, their root of meaning. And then he has certain essays where he acts as a kind of historiographer examining the value of, of history and how it's told. So depending on the ideas he's talking about, he, he kind of shifts forms and openly accepts all these views on life as he takes them on himself. So he writes in poetry, he writes in aphorisms, he writes fiction, he writes nonfiction, he writes in a biblical style. I know that's just something that's very fascinating to me that that a that a philosopher sometimes we think of philosophers as perhaps you know certainly very rational but also sometimes dry or maybe just very to the point where it sounds like Nietzsche just kind of wrote all over the place in terms of style. Yeah, of course, his style was engaging in a way. Every time he writes, it's it's very close and intimate with the reader. That's why. I, I can't remember the exact quote, but there's the idea that anyone who, who reads Nietzsche will say he's my philosopher. He, he creates a strong relationship with the reader as if he's kind of confiding in them. And he's he doesn't hold back. He doesn't pull back any punches that he takes on other philosophers and ideas, which makes him seem very authentic and very real in his writings. Hey everybody, future Andrew here. We hope you're enjoying the show so far and just wanted to take a brief moment to remind you about subscribing to the show on whatever platform you are listening to and giving us a positive review which helps us grow the community around Open Door Philosophy. Also, join us for episode 10 where we discuss Plato's dialogue, the Phaedo, which debates the existence of the soul, the immortality of the soul, much, much more too. Thanks so much and now back to the show. So is there some kind of aim that he's kind of going for using these different types of styles? For for example, Plato writes in dialogues, and there might be a number of reasons why, but a lot of people think it's to to kind of grow the reader as a as a means of kind of engaging with philosophy. So does he have some kind of reason for transitioning or using all these different ways? Yeah, I think I think there's multiple reasons why he transitions the way he writes. And I think that the main thing is depending on which idea he's trying to convey or, or discuss, he takes on different forms, um, such as I guess the birth to tragedy is a great example. Like what better way to show the relationship of the Apollonian and the Dionysian than writing in an artistic and seemingly beautiful style that actively engages the reader and just sounds amazing um so he's he's trying to convey not only through his words but how his words appear on the page of the ideas he's he's talking about and then thus spoke zarathustra was kind of the piece that he holds up on a pedestal and it perhaps has the the weirdest style but um it's where he more officially announces god has died and 
the style he's writing in, he's actively trying to replace Christianity by writing a a Bible of sorts. Uh, funny enough, it was handed out with the Bible uh, on the front in World War One on the German front. He kind of succeeded in a way. So, oh, so soldiers, uh, German soldiers in World War One would receive, along with all their other equipment, uh, a copy of the Bible and a copy of the spoke Zarathustra. Yes, yeah, sir. Yep, they were they were given. I'm not sure if it was a choice or um, they were given both, but yes. Thus, book Zarathustra was handed out alongside the the German Bible. That's a great fact. Well, well let let's use that as a as as a way to segue into talking about probably some of his more well known theories, other than the will to power. So, in thus spoke Zarathustra, we have uh, theories of eternal recurrence, and also another big one, somewhat unrelated, maybe the idea of the Ubermensch. These are two theories that that if if someone knows Nietzsche. It, this might be the theories that they, they know him for. So, so say a bit about about both of those. Yeah, I guess we can start with the idea of the Ubermensch or the Overman, and this kind of this kind of goes with his idea of the the will to power in a way. You know, trying to become, I guess, the better version of yourself, trying to overcome. And he, again, this is one of the ideas he doesn't thoroughly explain. He kind of just drops it in the leader's ra- lap and is like. Hey, here's an idea. Run with it. So, whenever Zarathustra initially announces it to the people, he's he's come down from the mountain, his place of hiding where he's almost godlike, and he comes to this village and he's going to start preaching to the people. He's going to start spreading the word. And the first message he gives is the idea of the Ubermensch or the Overman. And he says, Zarathustra, however, beheld the people and was amazed. Thus he spoke. Man is a rope tied between beast and overman, a rope over an abyss, a a dangerous across, a dangerous on the way, a dangerous looking back, a dangerous shuddering and stopping. What is great in man is that he is a bridge and not an end. What can be loved in man is that he is an overture and a going under. He's equating the overman to something that we're striving for just like the beast strives to become us it's essentially the next step in mankind now this can be read in two different ways it can either be read as each person is actively walking the tightrope from the beast to the overman meaning that you could essentially reach it or attempt to reach it in a lifetime or it can be viewed, I guess, generationally, that humans themselves, through all our endeavors, are striving to each generation to get closer to this idea of the overman. Kind of like, I guess, how the beast would have evolved into the man, and then the man is essentially evolving into the overman. I think most people view it through the first lens that we are actively striving to become the overman, become this better version of humanity. And he goes on listing the ideas he loves in man in this section as if they are attitudes and qualities that the overman should have. But they're, they're pretty vague, and when we finish this section, we're not left with a great idea of what the ubermensch or the, the overman truly is. We just know it's something out there beyond us that we're striving for. Something better than what we currently are, huh? 
Exactly. Exactly. Is there kind of a, it's more of giving qualities of who this overman kind of looks like. Is that correct? Not, not so much as kind of like a pathway to, to reach this. Right. Well, he doesn't exactly even describe the overman when he lists the qualities. He just starts listing things he loves about man, which is the man on, on the tightrope between beast and overman. And I, we, we assume because he loves these things about man, they're qualities that are leading us forward. But it's it's never truly solidified what he is, what this overman is. It's never described he kind of just leaves it there that it's something we're striving towards Carson if I remember correctly Zarathustra is published in 1887 or maybe 88 origin of species by Darwin was published in, in 1859 was this view of the overman in any way associated with Darwinism yes um, some people would view it as Darwinian that would be, I guess, the second viewpoint we mentioned, kind of that generational striving towards the overman as if it's a, a phase of evolution, that each generation gets closer and closer to this idea of the overman. And partially that could be why um, Nietzsche doesn't describe the overman. He, he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what the next phase is in this step of evolution. So it, it definitely can be viewed through that lens. Now, how do we authenticate that or give that any validity? I, I'm not sure how, how that can be done through Nietzsche's works, but that's definitely a way it could be seen. Yeah, because it seems like the overman is a type of, of evolution of man. So is this something like, you know, you were talking about kind of the two ways of, of looking at this. One is, you know, seeing it as, as this kind of journey in your lifetime. Is this something that, I, tell me if this doesn't make sense, because it, it, it probably won't. But is this something that, you know, it's something you're striving towards, but you'll never reach? Or is it something that Nietzsche's like, you know, this is actually, you know, this is the goal. Uh, this is a state that you should reach or can reach. No, that's a that's a really good question, actually. Um, it kind of goes along with his, his famous quote, um, becoming who you are. Nietzsche created this weird dichotomy between the idea of being and the idea of becoming. Um, he was very against the idea of being. You never are what you are. You're always becoming what you are. He really liked that idea. So this this idea of striving towards the overman is something that, whether we view the, the overman through that lens or not, is definitely something that Nietzsche advocated for. This idea of actively becoming um, the next version of yourself is, is something that he talks about off and on throughout his philosophy and something that he was very familiar with and something that he, he talked about a lot. And, of course, the idea of becoming, you never are being. So there is no final stage. There is no goal to be obtained. It's just betterment of yourself consistently throughout your life i can't you know what what you said there made me think of the you know, the become who you are quote kind of speaks to how universal i guess in a way uh nietzsche is like i i see all over the place you know on on, uh, on social media people quoting nietzsche like he's like some life coach to like pump you up and get you excited about life you know it's like 
become who you are. And it's a graphic with like flowers and butterflies and all this sort of stuff, you know, but then you, you, you turn the page and like, you know, then the atheists are there and they're like, yeah, Nietzsche, God is dead and we have killed him. Um, so, you know, Nietzsche has all of these, all of these quotes and he writes in such a different style and he, he writes about so many things from so many different perspectives. It's almost like it, anyone can kind of pull from his cadre of quotes and represent him and, and whatever use him in whatever way they, they want they, they want to use them. Oh no, I just made that made that association. Oh no, yeah. Nietzsche was overly passionate about everything and because he's actively revaluing and destroying everything we already know, he's pretty negative on that side. Kind of how you mentioned that God is dead. You know, he's pretty he's pretty bleak and dark in some of his descriptions. But then we see the the same passion on on the other side right the, this attempt to affirm life so become who you are uh, he also kind of coined the phrase uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger um for any man that has a why can get through anyhow he coined that as well kind of these very very uplifting phrases and these are kind of seen in his aphorisms and the human all too human and the gay science phase um kind of these little these short little blips of affirmation in between the the destruction of all value. He was overly passionate on both sides. He creates this great dichotomy, and some people pick and choose. And that's why it's dangerous to read one piece of Nietzsche. So, so from Zarathustra, the, one of the other big theories that he's well known for is eternal recurrence. So could you walk us through that? Yeah, eternal occurrence is another one of the ideas that Nietzsche kind of drops in our lap and doesn't fully explain. Um, he gives it to us in a, a parable format in the and thus spoke Zarathustra. Um, Zarathustra is interacting with this this dwarf that that kind of won't leave him alone. So um, Zarathustra's uh, attempt to get rid of him is in in the section called on the vision and the riddle and um he, he starts telling the dwarf the idea of eternal recurrence kind of in an attempt to to scare him off and the the section's pretty long-winded so i'll just read a, a small section of it but this is essentially his most thorough description of eternal return or eternal recurrence in Thus spoke Zarathustra. He says, Behold this gateway, dwarf. It has two faces. Two paths meet here. Not one has yet followed either to its end. This long lane stretches back for an eternity. And the long lane out there, that is another eternity. They contradict each other, these paths. They offend each other face to face. And it is here at this gateway that they come together. The name of the gateway is inscribed above. Moment. But whoever would follow one of them, on and on, farther and farther, do you believe, Dwarf, that these pathways contradict each other eternally? So he's painting this picture that we're standing at the gate called the moment, the present moment, and there's two paths that go on eternally in each direction. Now, an important part to this theory is that by this point in time, Nietzsche had completely destroyed the metaphysical world so there's a lot of debate on whether he's trying to say 
life goes on forever in the future and forever in the past, kind of in the cyclical nature, whether he's making a metaphysical or cosmological argument or whether he's asking us to use it kind of as a heuristic to look at life. So I think there's more arguments that it's it's a way to look at life, not a way that life actually occurs considering he was against metaphysical truth at this point. And Alexander Nehamas makes a, a really great argument about this in his piece called Life is Literature. I wish we could really go into detail on that, but um, we don't have time. But one of the arguments against it as a cosmological or metaphysical theory is he also brings it up in the book prior to Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He brings it up in the gay science, and he kind of does it as this thought experiment. He he tells the reader to imagine that one night you're confronted by a demon, and the demon says, you're going to live your life over and over and over again, forever, and it's going to happen the exact same way every time. And the question is, how do you respond with joy, with with fear, with depression? You know, how do, how do you respond to this idea? And Nietzsche's big argument with eternal return is if you can say yes to essentially one moment in life, then you can say yes to all of it. That is his say yes to life. That is his idea. If there was one moment where you were happy to be in existence, to to say yes to life, then it's worth doing it all over again. And the reason why he asks us to think like this is without the metaphysical, the only thing that would make you, you, is the total sum of everything that has and will ever occur to you. So if you were to live again, it would have to be the exact same way. And this is, in one way, how he defeats the idea of an afterlife. How could you be you if you weren't where you are right now, experiencing what you are right now? How could you exist outside of your experiences and your relations to things? But it's also an attack against you know having, having regrets or having um, bad ideas about your life, right? Because if you said yes to one part, then you can you can affirm everything that came before it, because if it had to happen that way, then you you can't have regrets about it because there was one good part, and it, it'll it'll all happen again. So because that part in the middle was good, good enough for you to say yes to, you can affirm everything after it and everything before it, because they all have to happen again for that one moment of yes to happen again. And that's essentially what he's asking us to, to think about is if you can say yes to one part of life, then you can say yes to all of it. Now, he's not very explicit when he does that. He does it through a parable, kind of this yes saying event. But that is essentially what eternal recurrence or eternal return is, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. I don't I really like that. I mean, you know, one of the things I like about Nietzsche is, is the idea of affirming life. And it seems to me like this is a, a really great way to do it. It it causes us to evaluate our life where we currently are at. It causes us to think about 
where we've been and how we have arrived where we currently are. And if we're not necessarily happy with where we are, you know, I think with everything that's embodied in Nietzsche's ideas is that, well, then we should do something about that so that we can, when all is done and said, uh, look back and say, yes, I can affirm, I can affirm my life. It, it, life was and is a yes. So Carson, would you consider Nietzsche a philosopher? I, I think my answer might be a little biased, but I would say he, he is he is a philosopher. Um, and the, the reason I'm saying that is he gets a bad rap as this type of anti-philosopher, but I think he makes great strides towards and great efforts towards creating a philosophy that affirms life, whether it be one we follow literally or one we follow by example of how he thinks. And I think the different caps he puts on may take away from the tradition of philosophy, but I think they add towards his ideas on life and towards his philosophy in total, if you want to view it that way. So I, I think he does, at, at the end of the day, all his hats kind of combine into the role of a philosopher on 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 life, on art, on death, on God, on he's a philosophy of of everything in a way. So yes, I believe Nietzsche was a philosopher. I think you've made a great case for him uh, being being one today. Absolutely, and with that, I think we can call our segment on Nietzsche finished. So that means it's time to head on over to the quote corner. All right, everyone, welcome to the quote corner, a segment of the show where we review a philosophy quote on a scale of one to five stars. This week was mine, and we're so excited to have Carson as a guest rater here. Uh, he's going to really just just, uh, just rip this quote apart, I have a feeling. All right, so I ran into this quote last week listening to a podcast. I thought it was a cool quote, and then I put it on Twitter, and I don't know, I guess the right person retweeted it or whatever, and it just kind of took off, and all these people started jumping all over it. So I thought it'd be a good one to try out this week. So this comes from Hegel, uh, the 18th, 19th century philosopher. And he says, genuine tragedies in the world are not conflicts between right and wrong. There are conflicts between two rights. So I don't know who wants to start, but y'all have a, have a swing at that. Let's let Carson go first. Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think Hegel's quote, you know, it has some some value to it, but he's not really saying too much in it, is he? I think it's a maybe maybe we just think it's a, a self explanatory thing today, but I guess he's realizing the the idea of two perspectives and I'd be really interested to see what the context of this quote is and what's going on for him to say this and what he substantiates as a genuine tragedy. But um I'll give it. I'll give it a a three, three out of five star. I don't. Yeah. I think it has it has some value, but I I'm not sure if it's if it's too enlightening at the end of the day. Yeah, when we talk about the quotes, uh, context is always important. I do not know the context of this particular quote, <laughs> um, and, and I don't know what it, what exactly constitutes uh, a tragedy. But I think I think the thing that attracted me to it initially was the idea that 
uh, oftentimes we have like the greatest arguments are not about two things that are black and white that are obviously right and wrong. The the big arguments in in life, whether we're talking about political life or personal life and relationships or whatever, is when like two people who are arguing both both arguments make sense and both arguments from a sense are right. That's kind of that was kind of my take on. It. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I'd be I'd be interested to see uh, the context of this for the third time as well, just because. I believe Hegel, he's not, he's not a relativist in certain ways. Uh, so I, I was kind of confused to see there's, there's both right and right. But, you know, it just seems, uh, you know, if you think about these great tragedies, you can just pick one off the top of your head. Philosophers often used to like to think about the Holocaust for some reason as, as the worst tragedy of all time. But if you think about something like that, I think it's very hard to argue that there's two rights in that situation. Now we could discuss that uh, the reasons for why there being a right and wrong, but I will save us some time and just say I think uh, I think the, that's wrong. So I'm going to disagree with Hegel on this one. Uh, I can see where there might be some room for being two rights, but I don't think those in those situations it might be a genuine tragedy. So I'm going to give it uh, I'll give it a two. Yes, I love it. All right, we got a two and a three that fits me under fits me under a lot of pressure. So with this quote, yeah, just not that excited about it either. Just for the heck of it, I'll give it a two point five. That way, I'm right Ooh. between. <laughs> sorry, I'm right between Andrew and Carson. Yeah, so there we go. All right, the quote corner. Well, Carson, uh, I, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, it's certainly a thrill to have someone who. Uh, is well experienced in in and so well versed in Nietzsche. Yeah, thank thank y'all so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun, and I I hope I did Nietzsche justice. I I tried. I just hope everything was understood at the end of it. But yeah, thank y'all so much for having me. It's been it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Thank you. That is uh, that is it for this episode. Thank you for spending your valuable time with us today. We would love it if you would leave a positive review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when new episodes drop and pass it on to your friends so they may learn how to live a better life. That's right. Uh, they can they can eternally recur to our podcast over and over again because <laughs> surely it affirmed your life. We'd love to hear from you if you'd like to tell us what you think of the show, have a question you'd like for us to discuss on the podcast, or a philosophy quote you'd like for us to rate, please email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. You can follow all the philosophy on Twitter and Instagram and our website at opendoorphilosophy.com where you can find many things about the show, including our book lists. All right. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the use of his music, the intro and the outro. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. And remember, whenever your life seems to be in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. 